All right, so this morning we're going to jump into the next chapter, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 8, which is going to open up the seventh of the seven seals, the last seal, but it's going to introduce us into the seven trumpet judgments. Okay, so we're moving along this timeline. But last week we had that interlude, that break in the action where we looked at chapter 7, and John met those who can stand. Remember the question asked by those who are hiding in the caves and in the mountains, who can stand against the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of God? And chapter seven gives us the answer. And we were introduced to two groups. The first one was 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They're Jewish males, they're virgins. They've never been married. And I believe they're literally Jews and they're literally males and they're literally unmarried virgins because that's what the passage says. And they come from every tribe of Israel. I've had a number of guys ask me, you know, how come Dan's not mentioned? How come Ephraim's not mentioned? You know, there's 19 different uh, lists of the tribes in the Old Testament, and they're never in the same order. And they never all include the same tribes. And in this one, which is one of 19 in the scriptures, Ephraim is not mentioned. If you remember, Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons of Joseph. And, um, Joseph is mentioned in, as one of the tribes, which would include Ephraim. Manasseh is included as a separate tribe, and Dan's not mentioned at all. Well, as best as we can figure out, the reason Dan's not mentioned in the list of 12 is because Dan was the first tribe to go into apostasy and to lead the rest of the northern tribes into apostasy. And so they're left out of this list. But The basic idea is that there's 12,000 from 12 tribes and they make up these 144,000 Jews who then become evangelists and they lead to the salvation of a great multitude. That's the second group we met. And they come from every tribe, every nation, every tongue around the world. And so you're gonna see literally in the Greek, millions upon millions come to faith in Christ because of the work of these Jewish evangelists. Okay, so that's what we looked at last week, and that was that break we had in the action. And now we're going to pick up where chapter six left off with the opening of the last seal. So it starts out in chapter eight when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. So the Lamb, Christ, remember he's described as the Lamb who was standing as though slain. He is alive and well. He was crucified. He was put to death. He was literally slaughtered, is the word. And yet here he is, alive and well standing by the throne of God. The interlude's over. John's attention gets drawn back to what began in chapter six with the opening of the seven seals, and he's gonna see the last one. And so we're, we're gonna culminate this section, but it's going to expand. That's what the chart I gave you, I hope, shows, is that it's, it's kind of like a tree that just keeps branching out and branching out. So we have seven seals, seven seals open, opens up into the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet is going to open up into the seven bowl judgments. And what you're going to see as we move, move through this is an intensity increase, a severity increase, everything increases. And it's going to move from things that the antichrist was doing to things that God is doing. If you remember the sixth seal had to do with the wrath of the lamb. It's what was causing these people to go hide in the mountains and the caves. The wrath of the lamb was coming. And, and that's going to kind of introduce where we're going this morning with this seal. So it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
This is kind of an interesting um, way to introduce this seventh seal. Um, it, it tells us that in heaven, it goes silent. Now, you can't read this and not go, why? Why does it go silent? I've, I've had multiple guys come up and go, what does that mean? And I know you're expecting me to say, I don't know. Um, well, I, I really don't, but I can tell you what I think it means, okay? Why would it go silent? Why would suddenly in heaven, everything go silent for 30 minutes? Why 30 minutes? Why not an hour? Now, I really don't know that answer. Why not 45 minutes? Why not 10 minutes? It's, it's 30 minutes. But there's, there's method to the madness. There's something going on here. And we got to figure this out just by looking at what it tells us. Back in chapter seven, here's what we read. I looked, John looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. In other words, and in the Greek, it's the idea of literally millions. It's a, it's a number above imagination. So it's millions upon millions of people from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. Now, imagine that. You've been to a football game. You've been to a big event, and everybody's screaming. Everybody's yelling. Maybe... 30,000, 50,000, 60,000 people, and it's really deafening. Well, imagine what this is like. You've got millions upon millions of people, and they're singing and they're shouting. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. So this is the scene in chapter 7 that John is seeing. He's seeing the redeemed, those saints that have died and are now standing in heaven and they're shouting and they're at the top of their lungs, millions upon millions of them. And then they're joined by all the angels, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And it says, they fell on their faces before the throne. They worship God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So just imagine from John's perspective, what this was like, just the, the noise, the, the volume of noise, and then all of a sudden it stops. You, you've been to like a sporting event where, you know, it's pregame and the bands are playing and people are talking, conversations are going on all around, and all of a sudden the PA announcer comes over and says, we're going to pause for 10 seconds of silence, and it just goes quiet, and it's deafening. The difference is important here. From all that's going on in heaven in chapter 7, all the praise and the glory and the honor, to suddenly silence. And what were they praising? God's power to save. Remember, they're martyrs. They're in heaven. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more persecution. And now they're in heaven and they're praising God for his power to save. But what we're about to see is God's power to destroy. Because with the seventh seal and the opening of these trumpet judgments, this is going to be God's wrath coming in incredible wave after wave after wave. And so there's this silence. And I guarantee it had to have gotten John's attention. And we see silence in the Old Testament tied to the coming of God's wrath. Here's just an example, Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. But notice that this silence is taking place in heaven. It's not on earth. 
Matter of fact, on earth, when we looked at what was going on at the end of chapter six, the lost people are hiding in caves, calling out to the rocks and mountains to fall on them. So they're not silent. They're screaming because of the wrath of the lamb. Here it's silence. Zephaniah 1.7, stand in silence in the presence of the sovereign Lord for the awesome day of the Lord's judgment is near. The Lord has prepared his people for a great slaughter and has chosen their executioners. This is a prophecy concerning these days, these end times, that God is going to be bringing his judgment on the world. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling. So once again, silence, 30 minutes of silence. Why 30 minutes? We don't know. It doesn't seem that long, but if you can imagine again what John experienced with all the joy and all the singing and all the praise and the glory and the elders handing their crowns over to, to God and suddenly it's silence for 30 minutes. It had to have felt really awkward to him, like shouldn't somebody say something? Maybe I should say something, but nothing for 30 whole minutes. And it's going to set up what's about to come because it's the judgment of God. And this is what happens with these seven trumpets. So the first five seals that we saw were just really the prelude to what's to come. As bad as they seemed with famine and death and pestilence and wild animals killing people in it, it looks pretty bad and civil war breaking out. It's nothing compared to what's coming. And one of the things I, I, I can't stress enough, guys, is that this is not, what we're about to look at from this point forward is not a little bit worse than what we're experiencing. In other words, this isn't a little bigger tsunami than one we've seen. This is not a little bit bigger forest fire. This is not a little bit bigger um, hurricane. This is, this is supernatural, God-ordained events that are coming. Okay? It's not like anything we've ever seen. And that's really what John, I think, is trying to tell us as he begins to try to describe these things. And it's setting up the day of the Lord. Now, this is an Old Testament concept that you see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books, that there is a day coming, the day of the Lord. Um, we don't know when that day is coming. Now, there are those who say we're already in it, that we're already experiencing these things. But again, I'm going to argue that what I see described in the book of Revelation is nothing like what we see today. You have those who say, well, we already have hurricanes. We already have typhoons. We already have civil unrest. We already have nation fighting against nation. We have all this stuff already going on, but it's nothing compared to what's to come. Okay. It, and I know that's hard for us to fathom. How could it get worse? It can get worse because we're talking about natural things versus supernatural things. We're talking about the, the results of man and his sin to the judgment of God, two different things. And so keep thinking about that as we move into this. So the sixth seal began the day of the Lord. It's, it's, remember what those people said in those caves, who can stand against the wrath of the lamb and the wrath of he who sits on the throne? It began, it opened up this whole thing. The great day of their wrath has come. So even the people who are lost, who are living during the tribulation, recognize these judgments, even the ones they've seen up to this point, are coming from the hand of God. And so they're hiding. And they're, they would rather die than be saved. We know from Isaiah, for the, the Lord of hosts has a day 
He set a point, a day in time against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. See, what you're going to see as this first trumpet and second trumpet, all the way to the fourth trumpet this morning, as they are blown and these judgments unfold, they're against the pride of humanity. And God's going to attack the very things they put their hope in other than him. So it's going to begin with him attacking the earth, the trees, the grass, the water, and really not them. They're going to be impacted by it, but he's attacking the very things they put their hope and trust in rather than him. And he's attacking at the end of the day, their pride, their self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I got everything I need on this planet. I don't need him. And he's going to show them, oh yeah, you do. And you're going to wish you knew me. You're going to wish you worshiped me. It's the great day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, six, wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the almighty. It will come. Passage after passage talks about this day. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. This is what we're talking about when we look at the book of Revelation and especially the second three and a half years of those seven years. It's referred to as the great tribulation because that's where we are now with the opening of the fifth, sixth, and seventh seal. And now with the first of the trumpet judgments, we're in the second half. And we're beginning to see what God's going to do. Joel says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the almighty it comes. Now, have we seen the wrath of God up until this point in the world? Yes. Um, We've seen God destroy the entire planet with a flood, and yet he spared one family. We've seen God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen the wrath of God. We've seen God lash out on nations and people. We've seen God send the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, into Assyria, into captivity. We saw him do the same thing 500 plus years later with Israel sending them into Babylon. We've seen the wrath of God, but we have not seen this kind of wrath on this earth yet. And so, again, it's a different day. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And that word there is a reference to non-Jews. It's the Gentile nations. As you, have, have you, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Again, pride, self-sufficiency, don't need God. Well, that's about to change. And so what happens? John says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So what's this talking about? Who are these seven angels? Well, there's seven angels. The word as we've seen before can It literally means messenger, messenger of God. They can be human. They can be divine. They can be angelic beings. They can be human beings. In this context, it would appear that they're angels and they're going to herald, announce something. And they're going to do it with what? Seven trumpets. Why trumpets? Well, we're going to see in just a second that trumpets were used throughout the history of Israel to announce things. They were used for a lot of things. Well, you can ask, well, are these literal trumpets? Is this symbolic? Well, it doesn't infer they're symbolic. It says they were given seven trumpets. So I'm going to read it as they were given seven trumpets. Why were they given seven trumpets? Because God wanted them to blow the seven trumpets. And, and so why do we need to dig any further than that? Well, let's, let's see what's going on here. 
Why trumpets? Again, Israel was highly aware of and associated with trumpets. And they would use them for a variety of different reasons. And these are in your notes, but they call the people to worship. You blow the trumpets, people come to worship. They call the people to battle. And there were different blasts and sequences of blasts that meant different things, which is important because if you want them to come to worship, you blew one blast. If you want them to go to battle, you blew the other blast. You don't want to get those confused, right? Or you're going to have a really bad worship service. They pronounced the, the crowning of a king. So when Saul was crowned, they blew the trumpets. When David was crowned, they blew the trumpets. It had a unique blast. They announced important news. Good things are coming. Good things have happened. And they declared danger. You had the watchman on the wall who would blow the trumpet when the enemy was coming. So trumpets had a meaning to the Jews. And since at least I believe that this book is really about what's going to happen on earth and primarily to the people of God, the Jews, then this makes sense. And John's a Jew. And so God says, take these trumpets, gives them to these seven angels. But then it says, and another angel. So now we got an eighth angel. Earlier we had four angels and a fifth one shows up. Now we've got seven angels and an eighth one shows up. And I think it's just another angel because it means another of the same kind. He's an angel. It's not Jesus. Who is he? We don't know. But it's another angel. He came and he stood at the altar with a golden censer. It's like a little pail, a little um, golden pail. And we'll discover what that is. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The golden altar, altar there is a reference to the altar of incense. It was kept outside the Holy of Holies, outside the veil, and it had coals on it. And we'll see in a second what those coals were used for in the tabernacle. But here's what happens. It says, and the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Okay, so what's going on here? What's all this about? The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This, is, this sounds like revelation, right? This is, this is typical revelation imagery. Well, what's going on? What are these things? Well, we've already seen this, this association with incense and prayer, the prayers of the saints, that sweet aroma to God. But who are the saints that this passage is talking about? Well, we've already met them. Back in Revelation 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. John's already met these people. These are martyrs. These are people who have died as a result of the tribulation and because of their faith in God. And they're before the throne. What are they praying? Well, let's see. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who have what? Who dwell on the earth and who have caused us to die. When are you going to do something? Have you ever prayed that prayer? When are you going to do something about this person? Lord, when are you going to step in and make this right? When are you going to act? That prayer has been prayed by believers for centuries. How long, oh God? David prayed it religiously and relentlessly. How long, oh Lord, when he was running from Saul? When are you going to act? When are you going to avenge? And this is the prayer that's, those prayers are mixed with 
the coals from that altar and it creates this aroma to God, this incense to God. See, I think not only is it those prayers, that prayer for God to step in and act, but it's all the prayers you and I have prayed that have to do with injustice, that have to do with when, oh God, not when am I going to get a raise? When am I going to win the lottery? It's, it's when you're going through things and you feel like because of your faith, you're under pressure, you're under persecution. You say, Lord, how long? And see, God has been keeping those prayers and he's been holding them and they are sweet incense to him. And it reminds me of Psalm 141 too. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. When we pray to God, we have to know that he hears. Does he always answer? Yes. Does he always answer in the way you want? No, because God knows better than you know. But he always answers in some way, some form, some fashion at some point in time. But there are certain prayers that have been prayed over the centuries that he has not yet answered. And he's basically saying, hold on, the day of the Lord is coming. I will avenge. I will make things right. That day is coming. I love this from 2 Corinthians. It tells us Paul's writing to believers and he tells you and I, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, Christ, everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. You and I are to be a fragrance to God, not just through our prayers, but through our lives. And what does it say here? It says, Paul's telling these believers living in their day that you will be to some a stench, death to death. To some, you will be an aroma of life to life. Some will hate you for your faith. Some will love you for your faith. But, we, but God loves the way we live our lives. He says to the Romans, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable, a sweet aroma. So it's not just your prayers, it's also the way you live your life. And so these saints who are under the throne who have died because of their faith are calling out to God and they're saying, how long? What are you gonna do? Well, he goes on and tells us the smoke of that incense that this angel, this eighth angel has taken, he's taken the coals off the altar of incense and he's mixed them in that censer with the prayers of the saints. And it says, it rose before God from the hand of the angel, a sweet aroma to God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. What in the world does this mean? And why are there peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning? Why is all, all this going on? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, f to figure out that that imagery at the end of that verse has to do with judgment. It has to do with power. It has to do with the holiness of God. It's the same imagery we saw on Mount Sinai when Moses went to get the law. And what did the people say when they saw the lightning and the thunder and the, you go talk to them. We don't want to get near that place. You intercede because they feared the power and the majesty and the holiness and the righteousness of God. That's really what we see here, but we haven't seen the results of this yet. So notice what he does. Notice what the angel does. He's got the censer, he's got the fire, he's got the prayers of the saints. 
And what does he do with it? He adds the fire from that altar and then something happens with it. But it's something unique. The fire, and fire is always a picture of God's judgment in the scriptures, is going to be added to those prayers, which is an interesting thing. That God judges, God is righteous, God is holy. And here the angel is taking the judgment of God and he's adding it to the sweet aroma of the prayers of his saints, prayer for vengeance, prayer for making it right, and then he's gonna do something with it. And over in Leviticus, this is important. Here's what they used to do during the days of the tabernacle and the temple. They would take that altar, that small little altar that had the fire on it, and here's what the priest would do with it. In this case, Aaron. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. He, as the high priest, had to cleanse himself before he could represent the people. He had to cleanse his own sins before he could cleanse the sins of the people of Israel. So he would sacrifice a bull, and they shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar of incense that was just outside the veil, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. So we would mix the two. Remember, fire from the altar of incense, the incense, mix them, and what happens? That cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. What is that? Well, the Ark of the Testimony contains the Ten Commandments. On top of it is the mercy seat. And it goes up to God as a sweet aroma. The prayers of the saints mixed with the fire goes up to God. And it was in order to cleanse the high priest so that he could then offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. He had to be clean first. But it's all about the mercy of God. It's all about God doing for this high priest what he couldn't do for himself. But we're going to see in this chapter in Revelation, it's totally different. He takes the incense into the Holy of Holies, Aaron did. He would present it to God on the mercy seat, calling down the mercy of God on him and on the people so that their sins could be forgiven. And he was protected. See, if he didn't do that, if he didn't offer that, if he wasn't cleansed, guess what? As soon as he walked in the Holy of Holies, he's dead meat. He's toast. Because he's coming before God with sin. And so it's a way of him being cleansed, his life being protected. But in chapter eight of Revelation, what happens to the coal and the incense? Well, we're told in Isaiah, for by fire, the Lord will enter into judgment. See, fire is a picture of God's judgment. Fire is a picture of God's wrath. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Now, guys, I want you to understand, if you're in Christ, I'm in Christ, you don't have to fear this. This imagery of God being a consuming fire is something that turns a whole lot of people off. But it shouldn't turn you off as a believer because I don't have to fear the wrath of God. I don't have to fear him consuming me. There's been plenty of times I thought he would and should, but he didn't because my sins have been taken care of on the cross. But don't take his consuming fire lightly. One of the things I want you to take away this morning is what we're going to see is God's hatred for sin. He hates sin. And you and I don't, at least not to the degree we should. 
We're way too comfortable with sin. See, over in Hebrews, it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And we're about to see just how consuming that fire of judgment is going to be on the people living on this planet. And here's what you need to think about. There are people who you know who might have to live through this. Because let's just think about it. If indeed I'm right, and some don't think I'm right, but if there is a rapture of the church, and let's say Jesus came this morning, yea, Lord Jesus, come, let it happen. Either prove me right or prove me wrong. But let's say he came back today and the tribulation started tomorrow. Somebody you know, friend, relative, coworker, is gonna be alive tomorrow. During what? The tribulation. And if it's only seven years long, they're going to be alive during the second half of the tribulation, most likely. And they're going to go through what we're about to look at as God's judgment falls onto the earth. Because what happens? The angel takes that fire, the incense, and he throws it on the earth. He didn't offer it up to God on the altar. He throws it down on the earth. And the result is judgment, the symbols of judgment. Things are about to shake up on earth. And what's fascinating is that it's the prayers of his saints mixed with his judgment. See, I don't know about you, but part of me really longs for God to make things right. Every time I read the newspaper, every time I, I, I see the news, I was like, Lord, come on, fix this thing. And that prayer is going to get answered. And it's, it's, we're going to see it right here. He's answering the question, how long? Just hang on, guys. Wait, I'm coming. The day of the Lord is coming. I will make things right. So here's, here's the first four of these judgments. And they're not very long, so it's not going to take us long. The first one says, the angel blows the trumpet, and what happens? There followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Hail and fire mixed with blood. Well, that's definitely sounds like revelation, doesn't it? And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and a third of all green grass was burned up. I would say that's a pretty severe judgment. He blows the trumpet, and this weird things happen. Weird things begin to happen. Hail and fire mixed with blood falls to the earth. Well, over in Joel, this was all predicted. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, and we'll see that in a second, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is God's judgment falling. It is supernatural. So we ask the question, is it really blood? Did blood really fall from the sky? How can that happen? Well, first of all, why wouldn't we take it for what it says? He doesn't say something like blood. He says, hail and fire mixed with blood fell from heaven. And I know what you're thinking. Ken, that's impossible. There's no way. And so we write it off. And we say, well, it's symbolic. It's just imagery. It's metaphor. It's simile. It's hyperbole. You know, well, what does it say? Hot fire and hail fell from heaven mixed with blood. But we say it's impossible. Yeah. Because who's it coming from? God. It, 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 and I don't know why we struggle with this. I don't know why we try to make it say something other than what it says. 
I go back to Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Is that true or not true? Is nothing too hard for God? Would it be too hard for God to rain blood from the sky? He made blood. He, it's his concept. It's his construct. He made this place. He can do with this place whatever he wants at any point, at any time. So why do I have to jump through hoops and go, well, it can't, it, it can't be blood. So it's got to be something else. It, it, it's, it's amoebas. It's, you know, it's, it's clouds of went over, you know, a, a land that had red clay and the red clay got absorbed and with the water and came up to the clouds. And then it rained and it, had, it looked red, but it wasn't really red. And I can't tell you how many commentaries I've read who try to just put a natural spin on this. Or they say it never happens. It's, it's all imagery. It's not real. But I look at this and go, God can do whatever he wants. Just because it's fantastic doesn't mean it's fantasy. And we got to get that through our heads. I don't know what kind of God you worship, but if he's not a God of the impossible, you don't have the right God. And so, yeah, this book is hard to understand. This book is hard to swallow, but this is about God. And this is God doing things that only God can do. I love this in Luke 137. Nothing is impossible with God. He can save who he wants. He can redeem who he wants. He can destroy who he wants. He can make barren women have children. He can raise dead people from back to life. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Why is it the, 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 the thing that we all hang our hope on is the resurrection of a dead Jew, but he can't rain blood from the sky? Well, Ken, why would he do that? Ask him someday. I don't know why. I have some suspicions based on what we're going to see, but this is God doing what only God can do. Is it actual blood? I think so. But if you really still struggle with that, let me give you some help. Here's those in the room who have a limited imagination. Think of what he did with the Egyptians. God told Moses, this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was found until now. So he says, get your livestock out of the fields, Get all your people out of the fields because it's going it's to rain hail. It's going to be tough. For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Well, what happens? The hail falls. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. What do you think happens when large hail hits living people and living animals? Well, they die and they bleed. So you have hail mixed with blood. Maybe this is what happened. Natural explanation. The only problem is most of these... Trumpet judgments are against natural things and not against the people. So I, if this helps you, if this takes your God in a box and makes it more believable, go for it. I just read it and I think it says hail and fire mixed with blood fell from the sky and that's what happened. And here's what's the result of it. One third of the earth gets destroyed. Why one third? Because God is still limiting the degree of destruction. He's not done yet. See, if I were God, I'd have just done it like that. All right, I'm done with you people. One large comet just hits the earth and it's gone. But that's not how God chose to do it, or is going to choose to do it. It's going to happen in stages. One third of the earth gets destroyed. One third of the trees are destroyed. 
Remember what the angel said during that interlude? He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Well, they're sealed. They're busy. They're saving people. Well, now, guess what? The earth, the sea, and the trees are all going to get impacted. The break is over. The interlude's over. The judgment has come. It tells us that all of the grass, the green grass is fried. It's burned up. Now, this word is really important because it's not like grass in your yard mixed with the weeds. This is barley. This is wheat. This is rice. This is anything that is a staple for life, making bread. It all gets burned up. So all the wheat crops are destroyed. All the hay gets destroyed or, or the oats and the barley and the rice gets destroyed. Now think about that. What does that do? This is on top of everything we saw with the first seals. Famine and war and pestilence and economic breakdown, it's going to get worse. God is meeting out his judgment. Well, what's the second trumpet? He says, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. Oh gosh, there's the blood thing again. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Did this really happen? Is this going to really happen? Is it true? Is it real? Well, let's take it for what it says. The trumpet gets blown, a mountain falls. He says it's something like a mountain. What is it? We don't know. Is it a comet? I don't know. Is it a meteor? I don't know. Is it an asteroid? I don't know. I don't think it's a mountain because it says something like a mountain. It's the best John could do to describe whatever it was he saw. So is the fact that we don't know what it is mean it's symbolic? I don't think so. Not necessarily. He saw something and he described it the best way he could. And he's struggling just like you and I would. This is a supernatural, never before happened event. John's never seen it. You've never seen it because it comes from the hand of God and it has supernatural consequences. What are they? One third of the seas become blood. Did they literally become blood? I believe that's what's going to happen. One third of the sea creatures die. Well, if you turn a third of the sea to blood, guess what happens to the sea creatures? They die. They can't live on blood. And it destroys a third of the ships. Now think about that. If a third of the shipping was destroyed on this planet, what would it do to food supply? What would it do to the economy? It, it impacts the commerce. It impacts the, the ability to eat. Fishing gets disrupted. All kinds of thing ha things happen. See, God's attach attacking the natural order, but it's going to have an impact on human beings living on the earth. Third, third day, angel blows his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters become Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So what's going on here? Again, where's it coming from? It's coming from heaven. And it says a great star fell. Doesn't say something like a great star. It says a great star. It's Megas Aster. Well, what is it? That word refers to anything other than the sun, the moon. And so it leaves it open to, could be a star, could be an asteroid, could be a comet, could be, we don't know what it is. But he sees it, it's falling from heaven and it has an impact. Is it a meteor? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But it's, I think it's as literal as we can take it because it's coming from heaven. He doesn't say it's like a star. He says it is a star. So in his first century mindset, he looks up, he sees something falling. It looks like a star and he describes it as such. What's the result? 
Well, what's interesting is I did, I did a little Google search this week because this, this particular one fascinated me because the word wormwood, why that, what's going on? And I found this, this is really fascinating. In Russian, wormwood is Gorkoya polyan. I think that's how you say it. And here's what's happened. We've discovered that the Russians have discovered a comet or a meteor, and they have given it that name, Wormwood, which is really kind of fascinating. Why would they call it Wormwood? And they are planning, this is what we understand, they're planning to send rockets to this meteor, asteroid, whatever it is, that will land on this thing, and it's massive, and they will have booster rockets where they can control where it goes. And the idea is, the thought is, they plan to send it towards the Northern Hemisphere with all the resulting damage that would come if it entered Earth's atmosphere and landed in the ocean or landed on the Northern Hemisphere that would disrupt anything and everything. Is, is this what this passage is talking about? Is this what God's going to do? No, because I made it all up. Um, man, you got to... Uh, it's great. See, this is what drives me crazy. This is what so many knuckleheads do is they, you know, they, they look around and go, well, okay, this is it. This is it. I don't know what this thing is, but it's going to make an impact because a third of the earth's rivers and streams become polluted, poison, and people die who drink it. It's pretty amazing that God is attacking the very things that people need to live and exist. Well, what's the fourth one and the final one? It says, a fourth angel blew his trumpet, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So you have this cosmological thing taking place in the heavens. Nothing fell from the heavens. It's all taking place in the heavens and it has to do with light. It becomes dark. It becomes dark around the world. The day gets shortened. And God had warned that this was going to happen in Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land desolate and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Is this a normal, just kind of natural occurrence that happens once every 100 years, 200 years? Is this just another, you know, moon passing before the, the sun and the earth? No, I think this is supernatural. This is like nothing that's ever ha happened before. Ezekiel says, I will blot you out. I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud. The moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will ma make dark over you and put darkness on your land. So what's going on here as we finish up these four? Judgment is falling. And look at what John says when he, in his gospel, John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, Jesus, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, here's an indictment on the people. Jesus Christ, the light of the world comes and they don't want him. They prefer darkness. And it's like God is saying in the tribulation, you want darkness? Here it comes in spades. All the darkness you can handle. See, they have rejected the light of the world, so God impacts the natural light. They've rejected the bread of life, and so God attacks the very things they use to make bread, the grass. They've rejected the atoning blood, so he turns their seas and their rivers to blood. 
And then they've rejected the water of life. So he turns the water they need for life, bitter, poisonous. But he doesn't do it all at once. And he doesn't destroy everybody at once because it's going to get worse. And this is where it leads us. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. See, worse things are coming. The last three are worse than the first four. And he describes this eagle and the word really has more to do with a vulture, a carrion bird. And we know that something worse is gonna happen before it gets better. Here's what it is. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings and generals and strong warriors of horses and their riders of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. See, there is a judgment coming when men will die because of the wrath of God. So what has that got to do with us? What do we do with that this morning? Well, here's your questions for this morning. What does the increasing intensity of these judgment tell us about God's view of sin? And what should it say about the sin in your own life? Do you hate your sin as much as God hates your sin? Do you deal with your sin the way God would deal with your sin? Why would God slowly mete out his judgment rather than just wipe everybody out in one fell swoop? Why do you think he's doing it this way? And then read Matthew 11, 20 through 24. How did the words of Jesus tie in with what we've looked at today? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning. I know it's a lot. It's a lot to digest. It's a lot to wrestle with and struggle with. It's fantastic. It's hard to believe. But yet, Father, I, I pray that we would walk away at least understanding that you are a great God and you are a supernatural God and you can do whatever you want and you have no limits and so, Father, whatever you choose to do, you will do. And I pray, Father, that more than anything, we would realize that we have been redeemed. We have been saved from the wrath to come. We have your spirit living within us, not because we deserve it, because you're gracious and merciful. And I pray, Father, that we would look at our sin the same way you do. We would loathe it. We would hate it. We would want to be rid of it. And we know that that day is coming when your son returns. And we look forward to that day. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.